So Psalm 16 is going to be where we're going to be in our lesson this morning. And if, uh, if you're visiting, um, this is something that um, I think is significant about the Psalms, but those of you who are here have probably heard me say this many times now as we've gone through the Psalms. But it's hard to overstate the significance of the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are quoted more in the New Testament than even the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is quoted much more than any other book of the Bible before that. And I would think of the Psalms nearly as the heart of the Bible. Um, The Psalms are quoted in a way that help us, I think, get insight into the fact that the psalmists aren't just expressing thoughts and attitudes that um, help us see into their heart, but are expressing things that ultimately help us see into the heart of Jesus himself. Um, You may remember a more famous quotation from the Psalms where Jesus personalizes the statement in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And again, as we see the Psalms quoted in the New Testament, we see a plethora of ways that they can be applied and made relevant in the New Covenant. I want to read Psalm 16 again all the way through, and just to put it fresh into our mind, and I'll explain why I've titled the lesson Following the Foremost Command, and give just a couple more introductory thoughts before we look more at it. Um, So Psalm 16, uh, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their name upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You may remember especially this verse quoted in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 13 in two sermons. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So I want to start with this question. How close do you want to be with God? Um, How much do you want to love God or be united with God? You know, I think we can all agree that there were certain limitations on the Old Covenant, right? And that was the importance of what Jesus brought when he came, is in John 17, Jesus prayed that there could be perfected unity between man and God. And that ultimately was not fully realized until he died and rose from the dead. So the Old Covenant had shortcomings just by nature. And yet what we see in the Psalms is we see people who are pressing against the boundaries of what was possible in the Old Covenant before Jesus came. That what they're striving for is they want to know God as much as they possibly can. They want to serve him as much as they can. They want to know as much about them as they can know. They want to submit to him as much as they can. They want to love him as much as they can. And so what they're searching most diligently for is that God be the absolute center of their life. And it really is a living embodiment. It is a living illustration of the foremost command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. 
That's, I think, what we're seeing in Psalm 16 is what does it look like when we look into the heart of someone who truly loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul? And I would like to suggest to you then that we need to be striving like we should do with all the Psalms is really try to personalize these statements. Another thing, if you're here uh, regularly, you may have heard me say before, is the psalmists are often um, conveying New Testament truths using Old Testament language. We're going to see that in this psalm. We'll make some connections to ways that we see there are New Testament applications to the statements that David makes here. But ultimately, the, 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 the way the psalmists think about God and think about things in relation to God is not in ignorance, but in oftentimes it's almost more vivid and more real to them than it even is to us. Because they're considering who God is and they're considering reflections of spiritual truths from the tangible things that the Old Covenant made available to them. Think about, for instance, the sacrificial system, the temple, the rule of David, even as a physical king among God's people. So let's look at the first two verses, the idea of God being both refuge and master to David here. So again, verse 1 and 2, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. So I want to define this idea of refuge and point to how important this was to the psalmist in their relationship to God. But really, just fundamentally, the idea of refuge is the psalmists continuously, they sought protection from God and they sought deliverance from God. And that really is the anthem of the psalms. Continuously, that's what you see is the psalmists, even if they're not using the word refuge, they're constantly calling on God to protect them. And when they are in trouble or when they're in danger, they're calling on God to deliver. And very often they're praising God because he has protected them or because he has delivered them in the past. And so that really becomes a centerpiece of the attitude of the psalmists. And I know this might seem a little redundant, but especially in book one, at least leading up to, so book one of the psalms is Psalm 1 through 41. Um, I want to at least show up to the point that we'll, we'll look at Psalm 34 a little bit this morning, just how common a phrase this is within the first section of the Psalms, book one. Go back to Psalm two. And again, just to show how significant this phrase was, just in the language, but also the attitude of the ways that the psalmist thought about God and how they connected with him. Psalm two, verse 12. So just look at the very last phrase. Your Bible probably has each phrase of Psalm two in a separate line. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now look forward just a little bit in verse 11 of uh, Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you for it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Look at Psalm 7 and look at just the first verse of Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Look at Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. And we'll just pause at that statement and look at uh, Psalm 14, verse 6. Uh, you remember uh, last month we looked a bit at Psalm 14, and Psalm 14 is a meditation on the wicked. 
And in verse 6 he says, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. And he's talking about what the wicked do towards the righteous. Um, And he says, but the Lord is his refuge. Look at Psalm 17, verse 7. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. Look at Psalm 18, verse 2. This may be in the same opening. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Now skip forward quite a few to Psalm 25, verse 20. Psalm 25, verse 20. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Look at Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. And now look at Psalm 34, 8. And we'll, we're going to pause on Psalm 34 because we'll be referencing some things in Psalm uh, 16 with Psalm 34. But Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, and it goes on and on, and there's 150 psalms, and this, this anthem of the psalmists stays constant through the very end of the psalm. So really, this is just an introductory taste of the presence of this attitude in the psalmists with God. So just kind of imagine this, the significance of this. Imagine a little child in their parents' household, and that little child never lets their parents protect them, never goes to them for comfort, never goes to them for joy, never tries to stand behind them to seek protection maybe from others who are picking on them. If a child doesn't see their parent as someone who is able to protect them and comfort them and deliver them, is that a good parent-child relationship? Like if a child, for instance, only sees their parent as, well, yeah, that person exists and I need to obey them. Is that a real, full, working relationship? just to acknowledge existence and realize, yeah, I've got an obligation to do what my parents want me to do. No, children need protection from their their parental figures. And the psalmists saw themselves in the same way, that they were consistently in very real danger that only God could protect them from and ultimately only God could deliver them from. We'll see the significance of that uh, further in Psalm 34 here. Look at the end of the psalm. So Psalm 34 is... One of these psalms where David, as an author, is kind of pausing and reflecting on the glory of God's deliverance, how often he delivers, how great his deliverance is, how motivating it is. But look at verse 17, and I think this continues to give us a picture of what the psalmists were looking at with God when they thought of this idea of finding refuge in him. Verse 17, the righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. By the way, that's quoted the idea of that in John 19:36, with Jesus not having a bone broken in his crucifixion. Verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so you notice the 
summary I have on the board with this section. This idea of seeing God as a refuge was a foundational aspect of why they loved God. It's a foundational aspect for what motivated their praise toward God. It's what motivated them to want to tell others about God and wanted other people to see how worthy God was, not just of allegiance, but of recognition, of praise, of honor, of devotion. And with that idea of devotion, if you come back now to Psalm 16, verse 2, as the psalmist is seeking refuge and protection from God, not from the world, not from himself, and David, you imagine, you know, man of war, probably pretty equipped to defend himself, um, but instead David seeks refuge in the Lord. And in verse 2 he says, I said. So I don't think this is David saying, I'm saying, but very often in the Psalms, we've, we've noticed in the past that the psalmist will very often simply meditate on something or actually really just kind of speak to themselves and instruct themselves to do something with God. And the idea of Lord here is, is interesting because in verse 2, if your Bible's like mine, you'll notice the first word Lord, so I said to the Lord, is all uppercase, every letter, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So that's the word that in the Hebrew is Jehovah, kind of like God's covenantal name, Jehovah. But then he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, and that is Adonai. And that's a word that conveys the idea more of master, that you are ruler over me, and my obedience, my life, is committed to you to do your will. So this idea of Lord, David is remembering, I've committed myself to the Lord, and I have no good besides you. And we need continuous reminders of who our master is. You know, our service to God is a service of renewed commitment, that we're remembering who God is, why we're serving him, why he is worthy to be served, why he's worthy to be praised. And very often, our songs that we sing together are of that nature, of reminding one another about what God has done for us and who he is. Um, you remember in Luke 17, uh, verses 5 through 10, um, I won't turn there, but just for a matter of reference, the disciples needed reminders like this as well. In Luke's gospel at the beginning of chapter 17 is where Jesus instructed them to forgive 70 times 7. And the disciples hearing this said, wow, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus answering their question seems to indicate it's not so much an issue of having greater faith so much as just simple obedience. So then he says, what master is there who tells his slave to make some food for him and prepares a meal? Does he thank that slave when the slave has done what was commanded? No. First, the master eats and the slave did what he said. So Jesus says, after you've done everything that you've been commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was expected, what was commanded of us to do, what was obligated. And so David is reminding himself in a time where if he's seeking refuge, he is in trouble or is in a situation of affliction, as is very common in the Psalms. And he is reminding himself of who's really the master of the situation, right? That God is still the one to follow. God is still worthy of being served because he recognizes again, he has no good besides him. Remember James 1 verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Um, if we can't thank God for something that we're doing, something that we're involving ourselves in, 
Should we be involved in that or should we be doing that? I remember a friend of mine recently was reflecting on some advice he had heard from another uh, brother in Christ. A preacher had told him, you know, you can even take a nap in the name of the Lord. You know, because remember the verse, do all things in the name of the Lord. And his point was, you know, you can direct everything you're doing to God. You can thank him for things that you're doing. Even if it's just something you're enjoying or something leisurely, if you can thank God for it, then you can do that in a way where God is still the center of it because he is the focused person that is giving that joy. And so what David is saying is everything in his life is centered on God. Everything in his life is deliberately being plugged into God. And that there's nothing that is worth anything. There's nothing that has any goodness. There's nothing that has any value unless God can be praised for it and unless God can be seen through it. So we'll see that theme continue in this next section in verses 3 through 6 and also at the end. So how does David's attitude toward God fundamentally here, taking refuge in the Lord, seeing him as the master of his life, being willing to submit to him and serve him, even in trouble, and seeing him as his only good. Verse 3 is one of my favorite statements in the book of Psalms. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Did you know that seeing God's people as saints is not just a New Testament concept? When Paul wrote letters to churches, oftentimes he would say, to the saints in Ephesus or to the saints who are in Corinth, And so our view of God ultimately dictates our attachment to his people. You know, David loves God with all of his heart. And it's not just that he sees that God is an existing being with authority. He genuinely, truly loves God. And he thinks in the highest possible way about him. And notice in verse 3, it's not just that he's acknowledging that, yeah, your people are important. He describes them with incredible, vivid, poetic terms saints even. You know, the idea of a saint is just the idea of holy people or holy one. And so if God is holy, then what does that make his people? Then they would also be reflections of his holiness. And so David sees that God's people reflect the most important characteristic of his nature, his holiness. And it's not just that God appreciates them, He uses a word that most often is word exclusively of God. They are the majestic ones. Let me ask you this. Do you think David was judging that by appearances? Do you think he looked at a person who is godly and thought, wow, what a beauty? You know, I would argue that it's like 2 Corinthians 5, that David was thinking of people by faith, not by sight. That if these are people bound to the Lord if these are people who are destined to be with him because of their allegiance to him, then they share his majesty. And he sees majesty even if, by appearance, it may not be evident. And it's not just that he sees glory and majesty as a reflection of God's own majesty, but his delight is in them. So I think this shows you too that in verse 2 when he says, I have no good besides you, that includes all that is connected with God that he can be seen through. Obviously, the good is not just in God himself, but David also delights in the majestic people, the saints who are in the earth. You will know what you delight the most in because of where you most diligently attach yourself and invest yourself. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to this reference. 
And just think about the similarity between what David is saying in the Old Testament compared to how similar that is to what Paul is saying after Jesus has come and risen from the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. This comes after Paul acknowledging that the Thessalonians weren't a rich people, they weren't an influential people in their community, but that they were despised and persecuted in their community. And he says in verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? And so I expect him here to say, well, it's Jesus, it's God. But look as he says, Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. How invested are you trying to be among God's people? People can say a lot of things with their mouths about God, right? But really it's what we do with our faith that proves the truthfulness of where our devotions really lie. People who love God, people who hold him in the highest esteem, they are people who attach themselves and invest themselves into God's people. And so you'll know your view of God based on your view of God's people. You'll know your attachment to God because of how attached you are to his people. And that also reflects our attitude and attachment to those who deny or abandon God. In verse 4, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. So the psalmists oftentimes say very difficult things about the wicked, like things that are so extreme, it can almost seem like they're potentially saying something bad. But I would very strongly want to put in your mind that The psalmists, when they're meditating on these things, are simply stripping things down and seeing things very honestly and are seeing things really as they are and having their hearts set in the right place. So the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. So is David then going to allow himself to be tempted away from his allegiance to God? Is David going to see goodness in things that would deceive him? and make him deny God, or participate in things that would lead him away from God? Look at Psalm 26, verses 4 through 7, just a nearby psalm where David communicates something very similarly. Look at Psalm 26, verse 4. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. So back to Psalm 16, verse 4. To be more attached to God's people means being less attached to the world. And I think we see this in the New Testament in many places. You think about 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul talks about coming out from among them, what fellowship does light have with darkness or a believer with an unbeliever? I don't think it's that in Psalm 16, David was not passionate about bringing God to people who did not know him or trying to help people who have denied him turn back to him. But God was the center of all of David's relationships. And any relationship that put his center relationship with God in danger was not worth having to David. And so think about how this would apply to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. Does David sound like the person here who is willing to flatter the kind of company that is going to corrupt his integrity in the Lord or his relationship with God? 
And so David in this meditation is simply being honest about the need to separate things out, to see things as they truly are, and to make some pretty clear decisions about who ultimately he's going to serve. If he's going to have more delight in the Lord and his people, it means he needs to have less delight in the world and the people of the world who don't acknowledge God. And then verse 5, 5 and 6. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Ultimately, our view of God, it dictates our attachment to the boundaries and the values of the things that are holy. I think you see a contrast of this in the very next psalm. Oftentimes, if you read the psalms and um, you pay attention to the themes and to individual psalms, you'll notice parallels oftentimes with psalms that are right next to each other. Notice how Psalm 17 ends. So in Psalm 16, he's meditating ultimately on the inheritance and the hope that God has allotted to him. And he continues to reflect on that to the end of the psalm. But in Psalm 17, notice the way this psalm ends. Verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. So David in Psalm 17 is again making a separation that there are those whose hope and inheritance lies just in this life. And David says, as for me, my inheritance, my hope, is I will see the Lord face to face and I will behold him and be in his likeness when I awake. The psalmist very often, again, they thought of eternal truths in Old Testament tangible language. And I think that's what's going on in verse 5 and 6. He sees the Lord as his inheritance, that he has uh, an allotment that God has granted him, ultimately God himself, and David sees that as a very beautiful thing. I want to make an illustration again with this, with the idea of boundaries. In 1936, there was a man named Jesse Owens who became pretty famous because he broke the world record, world record for the long jump at the time. And um, he was an African-American man, um, and this was in Germany at a time when um, a lot of controversial things were going on that were going to lead to World War II. And so it was, it was quite a famous thing that uh, Jesse Owens, um, an African-American man, uh, broke the world record. But it's, it's how he did it that I want to use as an illustration. Uh, his first two jumps, he crossed the line. First jump, broke the world record, just totally knocked it out, shattered it. But he, he crossed the line. So what happened with his record? It's tossed out. He crossed the line. Second time he jumped, he again, he broke the world record, but he crossed the line. And so it was disregarded. For his third jump, do you know what he did? He drew his own line a few inches back. You know what that means, right? A few inches to a long jumper is a fairly significant amount of room. He drew the line a few inches back. He made the jump. He broke the world record. And he won the Olympic gold. It is such a shame when we don't realize what can be achieved having a conservative attitude toward God's word. 
When David thought about the boundaries of God's holiness and character, what's confined within that, David wasn't trying to press the boundaries of God's holiness to get away. He was seeing the beauty of staying safely in what was allotted to him in the Lord. And what David saw is that's where all the glory is held, is being bound in the safety of the lines that God had drawn, and that is where the greatest achievements were held. David had such a different attitude about God's word, God's commandments, God's instructions. So let's look at the last part in verses 7 through 11. We'll read it again. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Why don't you just pause on that? Wouldn't it be amazing to think about God this way? Can you imagine how evangelistically motivated we would be if we all thought about God this way? Just the attitude, the passion we can have for God. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. What I think is amazing about this term, you know, the psalmists, they use every possible term that could be used in relation to God. So for instance, with even when they would dwell on his commandments, they would talk about statute, ordinance, commandment, instruction. It's like, well, what's the difference? Well, the psalmist could see the difference because they would think deeply about the things of God. Well, what's the difference between praising, adoring, blessing, honoring? Well, you know, isn't that all the same? Well, to the psalmists, those words would be used distinctly and separately because they would think deeply and constantly about ways they could approach God and think about him. So I will bless the Lord. It's a kind of a illustrative term. It really is an image of kneeling before someone and then expressing adoration toward them or gratitude toward them. So it's not just saying like, oh, thank you. It's the idea of prostrating yourself and exuding adoration to the person you're prostrating yourself before. I will bless the Lord. I want to note something in Psalm 34 again. I mentioned we'd reference that uh, a bit with Psalm 16. But I want to go way forward after this to Psalm 103. And I want you to see something consistent again with this language. Psalm 34, again, reflecting on deliverance, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So just, again, look at the different language here. Bless, verse 1. Praise, verse 2. Boast, verse 2. Rejoice, verse 2. Magnify, verse 3. Exalt, verse 3. Again, is there any difference between those terms? Aren't they ultimately conveying the same thing? Well, to the psalmist, there was a difference. And each term held its unique significance because they loved God and they thought deeply about the things of God. I'll make another comment on why we're looking at these after Psalm 103, again, a psalm of of David. Uh, In the latter part of the psalms, this might sound strange, but psalms of David become more rare. There are a lot of authors to the psalms, and most of them are in the latter sections of the book. 
But here we have a Psalm of David in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Does David sound like someone who is motivated to praise God? But here's the point. David didn't wait for others to lead him to praise God. David would initiate it himself. David would command himself to praise God. You look at verse 1 again of Psalm 103 if you're still there. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So David is not just saying, David, praise God. He's saying, all that is within me, I, I want to use everything in praise to God. I want my soul to be praising God and blessing him. When we love God, when we, when we see who he is as the psalmists saw him, we don't just wait for others to lead us into praise. We don't just respond to praise. We initiate the praise. We command ourselves to give that praise. And I think there's a humility of recognizing that there is a battle between what God is worthy to receive and what I may be willing to do or just may not want to do. And to David, God is so worthy of adoration, it no longer matters what he may in some form of his being will not to do or will, not, or will to do. He must bless the Lord. And this idea of blessed me or not blessed, but counseled me and my mind instructs me in the night. And you imagine a time as hard as it can be to picture, you know, no TV, no smartphones, no radio. You know, so you imagine the night being a time when things just really quiet down, things slow down, your thoughts become louder, you can hear yourself thinking, where did the psalmist's meditations go? Where was their mind being directed? David was a busy man. I'm sure he had a lot of things that he could have weighing heavily on his heart at all times. And yet when everything slowed down, that was David's time to think about the Lord. And he noticed the first phrase of verse 7, indeed. And so it's not just that he was thinking about the Lord. The quality of his thoughts considering the Lord guided his heart to deeper devotion and a higher adoration. Do you think Satan wants us to think about God? Does Satan want us to dwell on the Lord, to see his beauty, to enjoy our relationship with God beyond just being obligated to do some things? David's innermost delight was dwelling on the things that would cause him to have a deeper devotion to prostrate himself before the Lord and a higher adoration of his character. He is at my right hand. What an incredible concept. You know, so many times in the New Testament we see this idea that God is for us. The Gospel of Matthew ends this way. Remember Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. David sees it in the Old Testament. He didn't see it because there was some clear verse like what we have in Romans or Hebrews or some statement Jesus made. This was 
a work that he had to do meditating on the word of God, considering his works, considering his interactions with God, and realizing God is at my right hand. He is the one supporting me. And you notice some of these phrases. It can be easy, I think, to almost too quickly go to the New Testament fulfillment. But in verse 9 and 10, when he's talking about his heart being glad, his glory rejoicing, his flesh dwelling securely, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo, uh, undergo decay. You think about our marriage vows. Uh, very commonly, a part of a marriage vow is you know, richer, poorer, sickness, health, um, till death do us part, right? You know what David sees about God is the vow that God's made is beyond what someone could ever make in a marital vow with another person. With God, it is not till death do us part. There is no separation. That by this point in David's life, he could see that God had an eternal focus in view. The psalmist considered eternally, and they, they considered it very vividly again. You remember Psalm 23, the way Psalm 23 ends? Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, David, as a king from the tribe of Judah, he couldn't go into the temple. He wasn't allowed to serve inside and light the lamps and much less go into the most holy place. But David understood that what God was doing was bringing him ultimately into his house to abide there forever. God's commitment was eternal. And I think you can see in verse 11, this had radically changed David's values and ambitions. David wasn't interested in the things that were temporal. This had changed David's values from the ground up, like we see in Psalm 17, where he's saying, there's some people of the world, that's all they have. God fills their life with treasure, that's it. They leave it to their children, it's gone. But remember Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Don't miss that David is speaking of the resurrection in verse 15 of Psalm 17. The psalmist saw the joy of the Lord as a cord held by God leading into eternal life. In verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Do we worship God and serve him only because of what he gives or because of who he is? Do we only thank God because of what he gives us or do we ever bless God because of just who he is? And is God only worthy to be served because of what he does for us personally or can we truly serve God for nothing? And I want to point you to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. And really what Jesus opened up for the common man, for both Jew and Gentile. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes that psalm as a proof God had intended to raise Jesus from the dead. And David's hope, in some sense, David understood, again, in some imperfect but good enough way, that the Holy One that God would raise up one day, his flesh would dwell securely, that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, he would not undergo decay. And David derived himself great joy from the implications of this resurrection that he could see in the future. 
And I want you to see that we, in a much more complete way, can have this same joy, attitude, faith, hope. And so ultimately, if in Psalm 16, David in the Old Covenant could have such a rich attitude towards God, then the exhortation is how much more then ought we to take these things even further. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember with that the language of that heritage and inheritance in Psalm 16. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And remember the idea of seeking refuge and protection from God. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, as is the common circumstance of the psalmists. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Verse 9, we are obtaining the outcome. David realized the joy that God was giving in his life, the goodness that he recognized was all sourced from the center of God. This was God pulling on this cord of joy into eternity, just as in verse 9. The joy that we receive from the Lord now is simply a taste of what we are obtaining for glory, joy, and exaltation that will only be able to be adequately expressed when we are with God in his presence when we awake in his likeness and see him face to face. If you're here and you are not with the Lord, as inexpressible as it is the glory of God and the joy, it is inexpressible the tragedy of living a life in shallow connection to God, giving you life, giving you breath, giving you joy, and yet you're separated. And as sure as the resurrection of life will be where the righteous will rejoice before God, as certainly there's a time of judgment where the wicked will suffer eternal punishment and hellfire. And God puts us at a crossroads and calls us by his grace. If there's anything we can do, if you want to submit your life to God in repentance and faith and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins this morning, I would encourage you not to delay. And if there's anything else we can do for anyone spiritually in your relationship with God, whether that be confession or need of encouragement, please bring it forward as we stand and sing.